would hope that there wouldn't be graffiti at BYU. Uh, they ran across it. Uh, it was actually on the police beat. Uh, graffiti was found on the bus stop next to the law library, right across from the center. And the phrase, uh, there are angels among us, was written in black permanent marker. <laughs> I remember when... Uh, being a student there, I remember uh, uh, we had a, a devotional speaker. I don't remember who it was. It was somebody that was not a member, and they'd come in, and they said that they had they'd heard so much about BYU, and they'd gone into the restroom there in the Wilkinson Center, and he said that, uh, to his dismay, he'd found graffiti. He said in one of the stalls was written, Repent. <laughs> I remember the last time he'd been to a college campus where it was just like, Repent. Uh, that was pretty good. All right. Uh, that said then, um, we're going to kind of get to an interesting point now in, uh, in uh, church history. Uh, we're now within probably about 18 months of the, the, pro, the prophet's death. And he has really taught, he's kind of reached the temple work and everything that he's trying to do. And now in the last 18 months, what you get from him is a refining. He starts to clarify principles. He's going over doctrines. He's he's answering questions. And you just kind of get this 18 months worth of get ready for me to be gone. And so he's clarifying a number of things. And we're going to, we kind of get that uh, starting with in sections 129 and 130. So let's start with uh, section 129. Now, let me just say, this, is, this talks a lot about angels and how to know what kind of angels they are and all that. And I don't want to get into the whys and wherefores of, you know, whether you t- feel their hand or not or something. What I think is really important for us has more to do with how do we make sure that we're getting answers? How do we know that we're not being deceived? And the fact that there are, that, uh, there are answers available to us. So, uh, he says, uh, there are two kinds of beings in heaven, namely angels who are resurrected beings having bodies of flesh and bones. Uh, Secondly, verse 3, the spirits of just men made perfect who were not resurrected but inherit the same glory. Now, which which then opens up kind of what I think we want to be talking about today is... Uh, I'm talking about angels, and the interesting enough, and I went back and checked the, the Hebrew word for angels when it starts showing up, and the actual uh, what angels means in Hebrew is messenger. So, in other words, when angels are appearing on the scene, they come with a message. Uh, and so, I want to clarify a couple of things about angels. So. So we're going to hit just a couple of verses if we can uh, for a second. Uh, so let's go with uh, Moroni 7, uh, 36 and 37. Who's got that? Want to read for us? Okay, got it. Okay, now stop for a second. Here, for just a second. Just for memory of uh, the scriptures and of church history, tell me who can attest 
first-hand knowledge of being uh, messaged to by an angel. Joseph Smith. Who? Oliver Cowdery. Who else? All across history. Mary. Moses. Alma the Younger. Abraham. Zechariah. Nephi. Joseph. Lemuel. Yeah. Even the bad guys are getting angels. Okay. Who else? The Witnesses of the Book of Mormon. The Savior. Even the Savior had an angel. Paul. Adam. Can you hear it? And in other words, if you look at the history of, um, of the gospel and you have prophets in place, one of the things that happens to them, it is divine pattern to be able to provide information to them via <coughs> angels. That's why I think it's, it's interesting that uh, then we kind of get to these days and angels are a little bit like, well, you know, an angel might have showed up and, you know, protected this kid or something, but we're not going to believe that angels come and actually provide information from God that tell us what we need to do. And so, I would, because here's an angelic power, here's the Savior coming down, and all those gathered at, at Bountiful. In fact, if you want to go through the Book of Mormon and, and you know, take out angels, we're really tr in trouble, right? Because every major prophet all the way along is being taught a message by an angel. You know, Abinadi and, and Nephi and Alma and Benjamin and on and on and on. In this case, we made it might be the same angel. But uh, it, it's all there. So, so now, so that's why we start with, in, and so in uh, Moroni 7, kind of capping off this whole book filled with angelic, Intervention we get. When passing account the power of the Holy Ghost from them, or will he, so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? Okay, so so basically what he's saying is as long as there's one man on earth to be saved, then what? There will be angels. Okay, and so keep going. Behold, I say unto you, nay. Now listen how he puts this together. And it is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief and all is If people or groups are not receiving angels, it is because of. Yeah. Okay, so now we take a look at this and we say. How are we doing as a church? Do you think we have some faith going on here? Are there righteous people? Yes. Perfect people? No. Righteous people striving to do the right thing? Yes. And if that's going to happen, there will be angels. Okay? Alright, so that's that's helpful to us. So let's So what he's going to do then is he's going to say. So and give us all this direction about angels. Let me let me give you a couple of other quotes here.
let, I'm going to let uh, Mormon chime in here. This is actually from uh, Alma 32. Now I say unto you, and I would that ye should remember, that God is merciful unto all those who believe in His name. Isn't that nice? Do we want justice? No, we want mercy. Yes. And now He imparteth His word by angels unto men and women. Yea, not only men, but women also. Make sure you get this. Now, he's about to tell you when, how and when angels intervene. And it's, it's real subtle, but, but watch for this. This is not all. Little children do have words given unto them many times which confound the wise and the learned. When do you know that an angel is intervening? Okay, hang on to that. In just a second. How do you know when an angel is intervening? We just told you. When when we have words given us that confound the wise and the foolish. Sometimes that wise and foolish is us. Sometimes that wise and foolish for missionaries, it's why you find yourself saying things to investigators, to ministers of other faiths, and you hear stuff coming out of you. Okay, so now ask the question. Go ahead. Well, I mean, just, I, I'm not great at this. I mean, I, I think sometimes I get confused by what this may be the content of the Holy Ghost. Right, which, which comes as a, a feeling, feeling yeah. peace, stuff like that. And when was the other time? Well, I did have an experience that was really life-changing for me once where I felt like it was the ministry of angels. And I'll tell you real quick of the story. I had a four-year-old that was homesick. The next day, she was fine. And then the third day, she had a really bad relapse. And I had a strong feeling, which I felt was from the Holy Ghost, that I needed to take her to the doctor. Normally, you know, as a mom, I would probably just wait it out. But I felt the prompting that I needed to take her to the doctor to make an appointment that day. Later that afternoon, as the four or five hours went by, I could see that her, she was like dying. I could see that she was getting sicker by the minute. She was just so lethargic. So I remember I was with my other, you know, probably five-year-old at the time, my four-year-old in my arms. I was at the doctor's office in the waiting room, and words came to my mind that were very specific that said, tap him, check her, head to toe. And then those, the words head to toe repeated three times, head to toe, head to toe, head to toe. So I thought, okay, you know, I'll do that. So when okay. I went in there, I said to the doctor, I know that she probably looks like just any typical kid that's got the flu, but I feel really strongly that I need to ask you to check her head to toe. And the doctor said, okay, well, let's, let's take her clothes off and look at her. And when they pulled her pants off, they could see a red stripe going from a sore that she had on her foot all the way up her leg, and she had a really serious staph infection that was so aggressive it had moved that wow. much in just a few hours. And he said to me, if you had not told me to check her head to toe, I would not have done it. I would have kept her clothes on, I would have checked her chest, listened to her heart, looked in her ears and her nose. He said, after that, and he's been in practice for like 30 years, he said, Miss Argyle, I will never 
question of mother's intuition after the sister. And it saved her life a little bit. Awesome. Thank you. Does that make sense to you? That there are times, and, 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 and look at this. this. Now this is not all. Little children, and we're supposed to become as little children, right? That, and that's our goal if we're becoming meek and humble. Little children do have words given unto them. And, and he's going to tell you this in the context of angels. Uh, he imparted his word by angels unto men and women. Okay? That's when I believe, it's my own opinion, I think that's when, exactly, I agree with you, that's when angels are ministering unto us. Because there's no time to just feel peaceful and calm. And then uh, a number of people here can attest that having phrases come into your head and thoughts and ideas that just hit. Yeah, and, you, and you get it. Well, I think that's the moment. Okay? Yeah. Um, Sure. 
I believe that angels are organizing the family of God for many years. Oh, sure. Angels that teach, angels that record, angels that guard. There's a organization that God gives. Sure. They're all around us all the time. But, but the, this is a good question that says, and especially when we look at church history and you know, everybody's seen all these kind of stuff, how come we don't, yeah, in modern times, how are, I think we're hearing it, I think they're very active in our lives, but we're not seeing them like has been done in days past. Why are we not seeing them? Huh? Uh, you think maybe they've been out there and you didn't know? Okay, but again, yeah. Sure. It came in light, and there they are, and all that. Uh, I, I've, I've told the story here before, and I'll just repeat it, that the, the one of my... Uh, the, the lady in our in our ward when we were in, in Utah and she had two friends from New Zealand who came into town to do temple work. And they came and they they stayed in her and they she moved her kids out of their, their room so these two women were sleeping on bunk beds, visiting from New Zealand for a week to do temple work. And they're laying there one night and, and the gal on the, the bottom bunk awakes in the middle of the night, she looks over and sees a man in, in glowing white standing next to her. And she looks at him for a sec, and she bangs on the bed above her, and she goes, Your dad's here. <laughs> and rolls over and goes back to sleep. <laughs> and the lady on top, oh, hi, Dad. Okay, yeah, I need to get these names. Okay, anybody else? All right, thank you. <laughs> Instant access 
temples and all that. So in a sense, are we being ministered to by angels? Th these days, a lot of those angels may be us. Well, maybe a visiting teacher. Each other yeah. On a, you know, on a daily basis, if it's so uh, Remember that the uh, anti-Nephi-Lehi's uh, had call directly called Ammon and, and the sons of Mosiah. They, they called them their angels. They have come and delivered stuff to us in person. We're not needing angels from because we have you doing the exact same thing. That, that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, those others will we be obnoxious about it. <laughs> yes. I, I believe that uh, we can be directed in, even without having an appearance. Um, I remember going to the Family History Center. And it, was, it was a day of uh, total improbability. I wasn't even planning to go that day. I ended up being directed to a film that answered a question our family had been searching for 70 years. Wow. Wow. So the, the, I think it's just subtle. I think it's still happening, but maybe we are a little less believing as a people. Maybe we're a little more prone to skepticism or more sophisticated. And if angels are going to work with us, they're going to have to be more subtle about it. Okay? Let me give you another one. And th this coming from Joseph F. Smith. Um, it's actually my pioneer grandfather um, Joseph F. Smith uh, in, in a wonderful talk that I've, I've given out as homework assignment before in the presence of the divine uh, given in uh, conference in 1908 when messengers are sent to minister to the inhabitants of this earth they are not strangers but from the ranks of our kindred, friends, and fellow beings, and fellow servants. Our fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, and friends who have passed away from this earth, having been faithful and worthy to enjoy these rights and privileges, may have a mission given to them to visit their relatives and friends upon the earth again. Bring from divine presence messages of love, of warning or reproof or instruction to those they had learned to love in the flesh. So if you are being ministered to from the other side, who's speaking words in your head? Yeah, but it's going to be somebody who loves you and knows you. This is family. This is connection. That's, that's what they do. Have you thought to ask when you've had those situations? Who is this? Yeah, I know. Although I will tell you, and I might have said this before, to, uh, to my clients in my office, and, and those of you who have been in my office know that I may tend to ask this, when you start getting these impressions, a lot of times I'll ask, who do you think that is? And almost to a person, they almost always know. I have a grandmother. I have an aunt. It was a favorite aunt that died. I have, and it's almost like there's an instinctive impression to know. I, I, I have a, I love my dad. He's been gone, I, you know, and they seem to know instinctively. Yeah. 
Yes. Filling their mouths. Because right. angels. So it is the Holy Ghost speaking to us. It's just because the hierarchy of the church is the leadership speaks to us. Uh, it, is, it is the ordinance. I know that's where, and I thought, you know, it's right in the situation. Okay, hold Okay, hold. Alright, I wasn't going to go there. I'll go there. Alright, hold on. This is. The, this is your fault. You made me do this. I had no choice. Because you... Okay. All right. Second Nephi 31. Verse 14. But behold, my beloved brethren, thus came the voice of the Lord, after you have repented of your sins and witness unto the Father that you are willing to keep my commandments by the baptism of water and have received the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost, then can you, you, speak with a new tongue. Okay? What is it? Even the, even with the tongue of angels. And then in chapter 32 it's going to say, and angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. So your answer is yes. I, I believe that true. I think a lot of times the promptings and guidance and counsel we get is coming from them. But they're speaking with the tongue of angels and that is the tongue of the Holy Ghost. And that's why when you are speaking words of uh, counsel and Holy Ghost and whether you're speaking, where you're bearing your testimony, whether you're teaching your kids... Whatever that role is, when you feel the Spirit lifting you to say things under the influence and power of the Holy Ghost, guess what you're doing? You're doing two things. One, you're speaking in tongues. What tongue? The tongue of angels. That's why you can be considered angels at that point. You're speaking exactly the way that angels speak is by the power of the Holy Ghost. And, you, and we, that's why uh, I laugh a little bit when we talk about, let's talk about the gift of tongues, and we always think it has to do with foreign languages. You have all spoken, you've all had, always had the gift of tongues, of this, to speak with the voice of angels. And who's restricted to that? Look at the guidelines. After you've been baptized, you receive the baptism of water, baptism of fire, and the Holy Ghost. Now, congratulations, you get to speak with the tongue of angels. So, you made me do this. I wasn't going there, but... Okay. You don't feel bad? Okay. Um, couple more, and then we will... Prison Irene. When we honor the priesthood, we, we have heavenly hosts and angels who are watching over us. Some of us know how literally that is true. Some of us have an absolute assurance that those whom we have known who held the priesthood, and I include in that men and women who are part of that priesthood power, we get to receive that. Uh, this is not limited just to men on the other side. 
who held, and, and you'll get more of that next week, um, who are now part of that heavenly host are deeply aware of what we are doing and sometimes deeply concerned for the quality of our service. That's comforting and terrifying. If we, if we go back to the quote, uh, she, she wants to know, is anybody on the other side able to do that? Listen to the quote by Joseph F. Smith. Our fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters and friends who have passed away, having been faithful and worthy, either here or there, uh, to enjoy these rights and privileges may have a mission given unto them to visit their relatives and friends. So in other words, they're not just showing up to show up. That they have to have, they have to come with a message, and they have to be worthy to have the Holy Ghost uh, bearing witness through them. So there, ha- there has to be a reason. They're just not showing up willy-nilly. So could anybody on the other side? Well, if they were given a mission to guide and direct, and they have a message that we need to be able to hear, sure. It sounds like there has to be a directing Yes. Think about how we do it in our work, because the same the same organization exists up there as it exists here. That says we have somebody who has a need. Well, let's get somebody to send out to go give them a blessing. Let's go send visiting teachers out because she has a particular need, and it's directed by a by a priesthood authority to say, "Here's your assignment. Go carry it out." Yeah. assignments given and it's going to be directed and it's under their their purview and if I have a key here I take it there I still I still have it Peter James and John hung on to their keys and they they had to be able to give it okay somebody close above us. Um, Wilford Woodruff described uh, Brigham Young. Brigham Young described having been visited by Joseph Smith uh, at winter quarters. Joseph had been been down a couple of years. And Joseph gave him some directions about what needed to happen and tell the people to have the spirit. And There were a number of things that Joseph told him and he would come to him on a regular basis continuing to be his priesthood leader and guide and direct. Okay? But one of the things that Brigham said was, it was given to my mind to know the organization on the other side of the veil. And he attempted it, and, but he didn't go into detail. Later on, Orson Pratt would try and draw out what Brigham had told him, how things are organized over there. 
And, and I, I wish I had the ability to draw it because I've seen a, a picture of what Orson drew, but it's not very complicated. It's, it's, a, it's a single line, and out here are all these little lines, and then lines coming off of them, and lines coming off of them, and it looks like our church organization. You know, we got 70s and area, area authorities and state presidents and bishops and quorum presidencies and home teachers. And there's just like a very organized that power and authority falls through those lines. So they're given direction and counsel to give to us by somebody. Yeah. Yeah. somebody with a righteous desire. That's why I've never believed, for instance, it's absolutely random that we send missionaries out and they're going to go down the street and for whatever reason they feel like they should knock on that door. And for whatever reason, the person whose door they knocked on says, I don't know why I let you in, but I just felt like I should. Why do you think that is? Can you picture somebody on the other side going, that's them. There they are. Open the door. You're my only child. Nobody else will listen. That's right. Okay. Now, Elder Elder uh, Von Featherstone, in a letter that was written to uh, uh, some stakes that he was over in Utah. As the evil night darkens upon this generation, we must come to the temple for light and safety. In our temples we will find quiet, sacred havens where the storm cannot penetrate to us. There are hosts of unseen sentinels watching over and guarding our temples. Angels attend every door. As was in the day of Elisha, so it will be for us that those that be with us are more than those that be with them. There will be greater hosts of unseen beings in the temple. Prophets of old as well as those in this dispensation will visit the temples. Those who attend will feel their strength and their companionship. We will not be alone in our temples. Yeah, we we will be protected. Isn't that great? Okay, so uh, we we are in constant communication, and I've had I've had the experience, and I've shared it before that 
uh, a time in my life when I was really struggling to get some answers, uh, something I needed to do and I was just completely lost. And I went to the temple to try and get an answer. And uh, was just really struggling. And I remember sitting in, the, in one of the uh, endowment rooms and there was an empty seat next to me. And while I was sitting there, I became, it's the only time it's ever happened to me like this, became very, very aware that there was somebody sitting there. And in my heart, I kind of said, is this the person? I pulled out my little slip and looked at the name of the person I was going through. Is this the, yes. And this, this feeling of warmth came over me and said, this is that person. And suddenly it wasn't about me. And I, and, and as, as, and I found myself during the course of, of that endowment session with that person sitting next to me going, and this is why we do this. And this is what this is. And this is, this is why... What this really means is, and this is a symbol for, and I just, it was like I was talking to this person, walking them through. And, and now you get to do this, and this means, and then when I got into the celestial kingdom, or it's celestial room, that feeling was completely gone, that they had, they had left, but I, but I felt, and, and, and what that night wasn't about me at all, it was about serving and and there is a close connection in sacred places, if we allow that to okay. So that's why when we get back to um, the things that are in section 129, we start talking about angels. Don't, don't get too caught up, I, I don't think, in... Uh, all the what's and wherefores of that because I think there's a lot there to remind us about the power of angelic ministration that happens on a regular basis. Now, I do want to point out one other thing before we kind of move on to section 130. And 7 and 8 is kind of interesting. Ask him to shake hands, you want to move. It is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive. Just men and women don't deceive. They, we are honest. Eight. If the, de- if the devil as an angel of light, if, if it be the devil as an angel of light, okay, now let, let's stop there. Because I think everything else after that is interesting, but it's not helpful to ever do it. Can the, can the devil deceive us? Do we have instances in history where the devil tried to deceive as an angel of light? Okay, the Savior himself had the devil saying, worship me and here's some things. Eve, yeah, I'm I'm just trying to help you out, Eve. Here's what you're supposed to do. And it's a deception, right? A lot of what he said to her was exactly the truth. He told that, that I read through it. I don't see that there. I don't see him telling a lie to Eve. I don't. There's not a lie there. There is a deception that suggests that God didn't want her to become like him, and so to do that, you know, it was a deceptive, snaky thing to do. Slither his way. Okay. How about Moses? Moses get an angel of light. Yeah, and, uh, and remember, he's, he, sees, uh, he sees the vision and then the, the devil comes to him and says, Worship me. 
And Moses' response is, you don't blow much. <laughs> Not a lot of light and glory here. No, it's me. Worship me. I don't think so. I, I've just been in that presence. Okay? Now, from that, though, and, and, and uh, Elder Holland gave a wonderful talk uh, talking about this. When, and there's a pattern here. Sometimes we, we talk about the opposition that comes before we receive an answer to our prayers. When did it come to Moses? When did the opposition come? After the vision. It, Elder Holland's wonderful talk is called, in, uh, is called uh, Cast Not Away Thy Confidence. It's in BYU speeches. Incredible. And he goes through all the instances that sometimes we get help from the other side, from the satanic side, and often that happens after we got the answer. Think about how many times you get an answer to prayer and then you start second-guessing and try to talk yourself out of it. In Joseph Smith's case, it came before, although he did get opposition after, but it came from... The, the townspeople and everything. And, and Joseph, but he did get hit pretty hard before. But again, think about how many times you guys have gotten answers and then you talk yourself out of it. Sisters, I, I mentioned before, you are particularly prone to get an answer and then phone a friend. <coughs> what do you think this means? I have to call my sister and ask her. Well, I'm not sure. I, you know, they weren't there for any of that, but I, I'm not sure I would do that, or I don't get that. That doesn't make any... Ooh, now I don't know. Let me call another friend. And very well-meaning people will talk you out of the answers you've got. And, you, and, and that's why I, we have to go back to DNC 6, and the Lord is even saying to Oliver Cowdery, who's wanting a revelation, and, and, and the Lord is saying to Oliver, cast your mind back to that mind. I talked to you. And you got an answer. And the night that I spoke peace to your heart, what greater answer can you have than from God? I think sometimes this kind of deception after, happens after you've got an answer to prayer. And it talks you out of the answers that you receive. Does that make sense? One time our son, I was asked to give a uh, blessing to Somebody was asking me the other day, how do I know 
because uh, I've kind of written on this a little bit. How do I know the difference between a prompting and when it's just coming from me? And I said, uh, and I heard myself say, kind of one of those fun little moments. Uh, generally, when I know that I've got an answer from prayer, I get I get prompting and then panic. You get the prompting, and then because you know what you have to do, and it's not really what you wanted to do, then comes the panic. It's like I'm not sure I can do that. And when and generally. When, I, when it's me that's answering my prayer, I usually pick the easiest route. Or the one I'd already decided on, or the one that means the least amount of having to push myself. But generally, if it's an answer, it'll be a prompting and then a panic. Okay? The scripture's an example. Ask me, shall we sleep? Not that shall we open. Yeah. If you want these visitations, if you want these shed the pride into the way of the world, then ask Yeah. Okay. I, now, let who okay. Let's go on. Uh, section one thirty. I'm going to have a hard time getting past the first verse, and you're so shocked, right? You've never done that before. Actually, I have a hard time getting past the first line. When the Savior shall appear. And this whole, this whole section, by the way, is a, he's answering a series of questions, some of which we think was received within the last year, year and a half, and he kind of brings it together and puts it together in one grouping. Okay? When the Savior shall appear, we shall see Him as He is. Oh, I like that. Because now, don't get caught up so much as we shall, we shall see that he is a man like ourselves. I think that's partly the answer. But listen to what he's really saying. When the Savior comes, we will see him as he is, as opposed to what? What we think he is. Okay? So, let me, let me go back to, to something that I taught probably, what, a year and a half ago? Uh, but I think we just kind of need to extra dose of this just as a reminder. Um, and it's probably my all-time favorite quote. Oh, before we get to the quote, just a reminder from Joseph Smith when he's talking about faith, and we've said this over and over, and I just don't think we can repeat this enough. In order to have faith, we, we first have, an, have to know an idea that He exists. Secondly, a correct idea of His character, perfections, and attributes. Well, we know the Savior, don't we? Don't we study Him? Don't we learn? Don't we teach lessons on Him? Don't we know Him? He says we have to have a correct idea of His character, perfections, and attributes. And He's saying this to believers. And then finally, an, an actual knowledge that the course of life that he's on is pursuing is according to his will. Okay, so, which brings us to my quote from Elder C.S. Lewis. Now. Yes, now Elder C.S. Lewis. Who said, and this was one of those startling moments for me when, I, when kind of the whole world kind of went, er, turns just a little when I... And I could hear the paradigm in my head shifting. Whoa, that was weird. 
every idea of Him we form. He must, in mercy, shatter. To be replaced by what? The truth. Why would, why would God need to shatter uh, how we see Him? Every idea of Him we have formed. He must, in mercy, shatter that and replace it with the truth. I'm thinking, let me add, that's how I put it. Until we understand His true nature, we may be trying to trust in a God of our own making. What kind of God might we construct? Sure. I had, had a wonderful lady that I, I was working with who's, who, who her, uh, had had really negative experiences with her, her dad, who was very abusive and destructive, had had some uh, mean things said to her by some bishops and priesthood leaders, uh, and, it just ne- and, and home teachers that didn't show up and all that. And so when she tried to explain her concept of God the Father, guess how she described him? Controlling, yeah, mean, arbitrary, vengeful. And she had created a God that was really kind of in the image of her father. That's right. So, so sometimes people have, have this, they've created this God. Again, C.S. Lewis said, some of us are wanting to create a God that is a little bit like the uh, doddering grandfather who lets the kids do whatever they, they want to do and, and his main motto is at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. I want a God that just lets me do whatever I want to do and all roads lead to him and it's not a big deal. He really doesn't have any rules at all. Okay? Yes. And some of those gods in other religions, the Calvinist idea, you are like a spider on a string being held over a flame. And it's by his good mercy whether he drops you in or decides to remove you off the flame. It's just his kind of a whim. Coming from my Catholic background, there was never any personal communication with God ever in Right. Can you see why it is that every idea of God we form, He must, in mercy, shatter. We've got to be, it's got to be remade. Now, so now let's take it inside the church. Are there times within the gospel, as active Latter-day Saints, that we might form an, an improper view of, of God? What might that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's not controlling, but 
I like that one. Yeah. I think in my lifetime I've seen a change where we teach a God that is so loving no matter what we do that it doesn't matter what we do. And we forget all the times he's stern and that he's serious about what he means. Yeah. Or in a very loving way does he does he have to say, I love you but there are consequences and I hate that you're going to have to go through the pain that you're going through. But there are. Because we kind of say, I kind of hope for a God that said, will kind of let me off the hook. Because the God I have, great, great point. The God I have created loves me so much that he would shelter me from all adversity at all. Again, C.S. Lewis says, if we're wishing for a God that will protect us from adversity, we're hoping for a God that loves us less rather than more. We misunderstand what love is. We do misunderstand what love is. Love means not necessarily rescuing us from adversity. But we might want to create a God in our mind that if he, this loving God should be sheltering me from this, and if I'm not being sheltered, then I'm not sure I can believe in that God. I've got, I've got a wonderful client right now. She's struggling with that very thought. If he loved me, I wouldn't be going through the things that I'm going through. I keep trying to say, because then he would love you less if he sheltered you. Yeah, I know, but I'm hurting. I get it. But I've created a God that shouldn't be doing these things. And we, we would do marriage counseling with a husband in one tree and a wife in the other. 
So now they're looking at across each other, 40 feet in the air with this, everybody down there, scared to death. And, and I, I, had, I had a couple, I remember, one morning, and, and I had them up there, and they were, and I, and I had both of their ropes. I've got them safe. They're, not, they're okay, but they're scared to death. And then they get up there, and they start doing all the sniping at each other that they were doing on the ground. <laughs> Look at where we are. You did this to us. No, I didn't. This was your fault, and I'm trying to. You never listen to me anyway. That's because you're always such a snot about something. <laughs> <laughs> and I would try and intervene and now they're really scared and they're doing what they're, what they're used to they're coping to being scared it's like blaming each other so now it's in spades and the others are looking at me like oh my gosh are they like this all the time and yeah they really are okay that's what they do so finally finally I, I kind of had enough I got frustrated with them and, and I tied him off. I took the one rope and I put a nice knot on it. And I tied the other one off and I said, Okay, we've had enough of you guys. We're leaving. We're gonna, we've got another event. I'm going to take them to go do. Have fun. And I walked everybody out of there. And I, and I put them on another event. And then I very carefully crept back through the woods where I could stand right behind a tree and listen to me. Now look at what you got us into. We can't get down. Can you get down? No. Can you read? No. I, I, and, and, and they're just going back and forth and back and forth. And, and, and then, and finally, I heard her say, what are we going to do? And it's like, I, I heard it finally stop. It's like somebody, and I finally stepped out and I said, wait a minute, how is this like your life? This is your life. You guys are stuck apart from it, one another. You can't get moving. You're tied off. How long has your marriage been looking like this? A long time. Okay. Talk. I'll be back in a little while. <laughs> I didn't go anywhere. From a safety standpoint, I was going to hide right behind the tree. Should I need to do intervene? And then they started to talk. And they got this wonderful conversation going on. And there were a lot of tears, and they were finally ready. And when they when they were really humble, I hurry and brought everybody back, and then we slowly brought them down. And we had this nice little kind of ceremony thing we did when we got up the ground. I feel like sometimes God loves us enough that He just has to leave us for a little bit, let us struggle, and then we reach way down inside and say, "Who are we? What do I really believe about who I am?" But he loves us enough to let us go. This Michael Wilcox refers to that as worship. We worship a fourth watch God. We do worship a fourth watch God. Except for when we're that he's the first watch God. Yes. If you've never listened to the talk by Michael Wilcox on the fact that we have a, a God that comes in the fourth watch after we've been in battered at storm all night long. But we do worship a God that as soon as we're ready to repent, as soon as we turn, He's there. That's why I say every idea of Him that we have formed through our life, through our experiences, He must, in mercy, shed. Because it's wrong. We don't 
see him for help. That's, that's why I love, love, love this, this idea that says, look, when he comes, when Christ will appear, we shall see him finally as he really is, not as we've conjured him to be. Does that make sense? We'll see that he's a, God, a man like unto ourselves. We'll see that the same sociality that exists among us will exist there. Only it will be coupled with eternal joy, a glory we do not now enjoy. Not only will we see Him as He is, we'll see us as we are. Yeah. So yeah. Really yeah, I know. If you want to go over to 1 Corinthians 13 and talk about that moment when we finally no longer see through a glass darkly. But we will see Him as He is and through His eyes we will also see ourselves as we really are. Because every concept we have of ourselves, ooh, that's the coral that I should put that, shouldn't I? Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's really good. Okay, hold on. Uh, okay. Uh, C.S. Lewis got part of it. Every idea of ourselves we form. He must in mercy shed. That's the core. Ooh, that's good. Everything you think of yourself, he must in mercy shed. The closer we get to him, the closer we will understand ourselves and he will shatter your image of yourself. Does that make sense? All right. Don't mind me. I get to have these little epiphanies and they just show up from time to time. And it's way cool. All right. In the time that we have remaining here, let's hop in in section 130. I want want to go down to uh, another verse that I think sometimes we have missed on. It is verses 18 through 21. intelligence we attain to in this life it will rise with us in the resurrection and if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than other he will have so much the advantage in the world to come when we have people that have been inactive for long periods of time isn't it wonderful that they can come back into activity and they can receive every blessing that everybody else gets They are as worthy to enter the temple, to serving callings, as anybody that had been active all the way along. But there is a consequence to long periods of inactivity. What's the consequence? Knowledge. Think about all the chances to learn and grow and to be matured spiritually that comes when we're not active. Or think about all the times, uh, I was talking to an elders forum yesterday, and we were talking about the fact that many of us fall asleep. We get involved, it's easy, for instance, as a young mother, to be involved in a, a conga line of diapers and, you know, midnight throwing ups and, 
and sacrament meetings that you can't, don't get to sit all the way through. And there's just all these long stretches where activity is tough. And you kind of despair a little bit. Well, sometimes in activity, now you pull yourself out of that completely. When you come back, you get all the blessings of the gospel. What the Lord can't restore to you is what? Knowledge that that you missed out on and all those meetings that you weren't to. And all the times you weren't reading the scriptures and you, you, you missed out on all that growth. The advantage he's talking about is the fact that we're, we've got kind of a head start if we've been active and obedient all the way through. Think of all the people that are here on a Monday morning. <laughs> no judgment. No judgment. Beautiful springboard into this next, next couple of verses. Because I think if, if, if we're not careful, then there, there's two levels of understanding to these next couple of verses, both of which is right, but I think we need to really focus, I think, on the second. There is a law, irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. When we obtain any blessing from God, it's by obedience to that law upon which it's predicated. Okay, somebody put that in different words. How would you, if, if somebody wanted to get an explanation of that, how would you? Do what you're supposed to and get what you deserve. That's not bad. I like that. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And, and in this case, that then generally how we describe this, and, and this is this is true. So, so there, there is a law uh, attached to every... Uh, there's a blessing attached to every law. Right? So when we talk about the law of tithing, are there blessings associated with the law of tithing? Is there, is there blessings associated with the law of... Uh, the word of wisdom? Okay? Each one of those have a blessing that correlates, right? Okay? And that's true. That's really true. Okay, however, if you take one step deeper on this, and you take a look at this, you have to go back and read this, and it says, there is a law. Meaning a single law. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations upon this world upon which all blessings are predicated. There's a law sitting out there that that drives all other blessings. Very close. Very, very close. Because you've got to go back to 
It says, before the foundations of this work, go back to the pre-existence. And there was a discussion had about our agency. And if we were going to have agency, that's what the war in heaven was fought over, there was going to need to be a way, if we were going to exercise our agency, we would be able to be, we would be to survive the consequences of our agency. Because we were going to blow it from time to time, right? There was a law put in place by this loving plan of our Heavenly Father to offset that. What was the law? Doesn't that make sense? Would not it be, and the atonement is part of that, it is the law of sacrifice. Now think about it. There was a law of sacrifice given uh, before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing, it is by obedience to the law of sacrifice. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, why the law of sacrifice? Why is that the gateway through which we receive all the blessings that we receive? They're humble, teachable. So I love this. So I love this quote by Elder Maxwell. I have to admit that it, it is easy for me as a teacher, and I would I would recommend this to you. If you're trying to teach a class and you really want a good quote, Neil Maxwell or C.S. Lewis. You just don't lose either one. There's a good one for either one of those. Okay. Um, so l- listen to Elder Maxwell talk about this. Each of us might well ask, in what ways am I shrinking or holding back? Elder Bednar just talked about shrinking uh, to the youth in uh, Arlington. Meek introspection might yield some bold insights. For example, 
We can tell uh, much by what we have already willingly discarded along the pathway of discipleship. It is the only pathway where littering is permissible, even encouraged. In other words, as you're becoming more and more of a disciple of Christ, He's asking you to take a look at what have you given up? What have you sacrificed? Because in the journey towards uh, discipleship and becoming more like the Savior, He says you have to, you're going to have to give up some things. Sisters, when you talk to somebody that is getting ready to join the church, do they have to give up a few things? Don't you always love that discussion? Um, let's talk about the commandments. I love the church. It's a wonderful place to meet. Great. It's three hours on a Sabbath. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to need a cup of coffee before I go there. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, and uh, oh my gosh, and then, but we haven't even told you about tithing yet. Well, there's that tithing thing, and then there is, really? You know, what have you get, what does somebody have to give up along this pathway of discipleship? And he talks about, think about it as, as if you're, you're throwing stuff out as your journey. Okay? Yeah? I would give away all my sins to The ultimate sacrifice, the, the, the father of Lamoni. What do I? Well, here's everything that God said. Oh, I give away all my sins to know Him. In fact, in His case, He said, "I would be willing to discard it first. He said, "I would be willing to give away half my kingdom." Wow! And then ultimately, He says, "I'll give away it all." And by the way, did He? Yes, He lost His whole kingdom because the rest of it broke away. Now, listen to what Elder Maxwell says, though. In the early stages, the debris left behind includes the grosser sins of commission. You're going to have to give up coffee and tea. You're going to have to uh, quit doing... You're gonna, you guys are going to have to get married. You don't get to live with one another anymore. You're going to actually have to do the marriage thing. Okay? You're going to have to give up the grosser sins of commission. Now, to the heart of us. And why I think all the blessings are predicated on sacrifice. Later, debris differs. Things begin to be discarded which have caused the misuse or underuse of our time and time. What do we have to sacrifice in our journey towards becoming like the Savior? It begins to be more painful, doesn't it? It's easy to discard the grosser things, but so here my question is for you today. What do you still need to sacrifice? Uh, and ultimately, isn't the greatest sacrifice of all our will? Our willingness to put it all on the altar. It could be our time. I mean, go back to Elder Oaks' talk. Sometimes you have to take a look at what is good, better, and best. What are we having to sacrifice for the best? All the good stuff. And the good things. Now you have to... So sometimes those sacrifices are tougher.
one big thing. You know, that could be possible in any subject that they need to do. Sure. So there's rewards for that sacrifice. Right. But the Lord is going to continue to require, let's go back to every idea of Him we form. He must in mercy shed. And that is that He loves us enough, He's not going to ask us to sacrifice too much. And that's why, that's why Joseph, coming down the stretch here towards his death, turned to the brethren and said, The Lord will search after you and will branch your very heartstrings. And if you're not willing to let go of all, you will not be worthy to serve. If I believe this, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever you would ask for me. What are you willing to sacrifice? And that's and I ask that question to me. That's scary. I have I have my favorite stuff. You know, you can ask a lot for me, Doug. Just don't ask for my iPad. <laughs> that would be hard. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that there is a, a parallel in the physical world. Oh, oh, yeah, that's it. That, he's talking about the entropy, the the, the uh, cost that involves going from a lower state to a higher. To, it takes energy. You may have to strip some things off to, to get here. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, of the uh, Apollo 13. Ask us, remember the movie Apollo 13? And it's like we got to dump everything we don't need. <laughs> And they start dumping stuff because we've got to get as light as possible. Okay? Well, I think sometimes we are there. So that, that's going to be my challenge to you today. What are you willing to give up? The, the highest law of heaven, the first law of heaven, I think, it was the first one given. And when we were still in the council of heaven, the law was it was going to require sacrifice. There was going to have to be a sacrifice of someone. And that's when the Savior stepped up and said, here am I sending I will sacrifice me. I'll sacrifice my, my glory. I'm willing to condescend to go down to earth, be born as a babe. I'm willing to sacrifice you. Are there things that you're holding back on? Are there favorite sins that you're still clinging to? There are our favorite sins that we don't want to let go of. Um, Lord, I, I will go. I will do anything you ask me to do in the church, Papa. Just don't ask me to fill in the blank. Okay, my granddaughter agrees. So, so my my testimony to you today is that I I believe with all my heart that what is going to require as we move forward in our lives towards discipleship is an ever-increasing sphere of sacrifice. He's going to ask from us more and more. In return from that, the blessings of heaven open to us, and He has in store for us more and more. But we have to be willing to sacrifice completely on our side. And that's hard. 
and our hearts and desires cling to the stuff that we I bear in my testimony he wants to bless us. And someday when we see him as he is, we will see a far more loving, merciful, unconditional God than we have any idea. And you will also find in yourself all the false ideas that you had of yourself will be shattered and replaced with a true vision of how he sees you. I pray that we can do that in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, next week, uh, have a good Easter. And then next week is section 132 and plural marriage. <laughs> Not interesting. <yet. laughs> That's hilarious. starts today about uh, same-sex marriage oh. it's going to be a fun week oh. well you know what I went to a plumber thing which my husband works for I don't know if Brian Plumbers but he's a personal uh, leadership person and we, we did those things on the high climb to the top of the live redwood and so because of the live news so I had to, you know, get, you know, the stuff was like this, you know, the top of the tree was like this wide around, so I had to get myself full up, and I had just been calling some hands, I had never really gotten up, something like pillow by myself, and I'm like, oh my gosh, can I do it? And then turn around, we had to turn around, and then move for a couple of Isn't that great? It was exhilarating once you did it, but it's so scary. But my, when I would build that perch on top of a tree, we'd actually put like a metal flange underneath yeah. that platform, and so it, it was rocking. So it, oh, it was it was brutal. But it was so brutal. When you do it. Oh, it is. Yeah. When you finally get up. Yeah, was experience. It was very fun. <laughs> I just your your
No, 